This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and please open it to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. We're continuing a series through the Gospel of Matthew examining the kingdom of heaven, which is synonymous for the kingdom of God. So this morning we're going to take a a look at some passages, or two verses, that remind us of the unexpected responses to the kingdom. As you're turning there, I want to thank you again for your continued prayers for Emma. She is continuing to do well. We are very thankful for that. Her lungs are doing well and therapy's going well. We are still in the process of working through the appeal uh, with 10 cares. So thank you for your prayers as we continue that process step by step. Now, we are in Matthew 11 coming into the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with the disciples. It's a conversation that originated from a question that John the Baptist sent to him. John is in prison. So he sends word to Jesus asking this question. Are you the one or should we expect another? And in the midst of answering this question about John, Jesus makes this statement in verses 11 and 12. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. May God be glorified in the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. Those who have the calling to serve as emergency rescue workers will tell you that sometimes the most frightening moment is when they actually arrive and begin rescuing the survivor. For those called to serve our nation in the Coast Guard and have that rare call to be a rescue swimmer, they train for this very thing. As part of the training to be a rescue swimmer, and those are the men and the women who jump out of the helicopters into the water to save the drowning victim. Part of their training is that they will be placed in the end, shallow end of a swimming pool with a blindfold on their face, on their eyes. There will be four instructors then in the deep end of the pool. And when the name of the trainee is called out, the trainee will swim down to the deep end of the pool blindfolded. Where one by one the instructors will then begin to fight against them, get on their backs and push them down to the bottom. The blindfolded trainee then has to fight off the instructor, get behind the instructor, and bring them to the surface. (laughs) No thank you. (laughs) They do this because when they arrive to rescue someone, the survivor may panic and actually fight against the rescuer. It's not the response you would expect, is it? You would expect the one being rescued to say, here I am, just grab me and and take me up. 
But in fear and panic, they often fight against the very one sent to rescue them. The same is true with the kingdom of God. Often the response that we would expect the kingdom and the good news of the kingdom to receive is not what happens. The kingdom of God is the reign of God. So when we hear the phrase the kingdom of God, it refers to His reign. When Jesus came, He inaugurated the reign of God. Now it wasn't that God was not sovereign prior to this. But Jesus starts to usher in the time when the kingdom will be here and manifest clearly upon this earth. The kingdom of God is one of salvation and life. So we would expect acceptance. The kingdom of God is joy. So we would expect celebration. The kingdom of God is love, so we would expect open hearts. The kingdom of God is peace, so we would expect open arms. The kingdom of God is truth, so we would expect open minds. But such is not the case. Jesus prepares us for the unexpected responses in verses 11 and 12. Now, John the Baptist is in prison. He's been arrested because he had the audacity and the courage to speak truth to those who were in power. Herod had divorced his wife. Herod was the governor of this area. And he had divorced his wife in order to marry his sister-in-law, whom he encouraged to divorce his brother. So this marriage takes place and John the Baptist crawls him out on it and says, That is wrong. What you have done is immoral. So Herod has John arrested. Now in prison, John begins to wonder, Jesus, are you the one? It was an issue of expectations. A question that you and I would probably have in John's place also. Jesus, if you are the one and you are the Messiah, when are you going to usher in the kingdom and get me out of prison because things are not looking good? So Jesus answers John, John's disciples. He says, you go and tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended. He says, you go back and you tell John, the kingdom has arrived. I am the one. Now, Jesus then, lest people begin to think that John was a weakling in doubting, Jesus then begins to defend John. In verse 7, he says to the crowds, what did you go out into the wilderness to see when you went to hear John? A reed shaken by the wind? A man dressed in soft clothing? No, you went out to see a prophet. Yes, I tell you indeed, Jesus said, you went to see more than a prophet. So the question arises. As Jesus says in verse 11, John is great, but the kingdom is greater. Then why is John in prison? If the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, and the kingdom of God is greater than even John, then why is John suffering? And verse 12 gives us the answer. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. 
persecution. Now, this really shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't come as a shock to us because Jesus has prepared the church for this very thing. In fact, in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you suffer for righteousness. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So be ready, church. Persecution will happen. We are going to be falsely accused. We are going to be maligned. In fact, just prior to John sending people to question Jesus about the authenticity of his Messiahship, Jesus said these words to the disciples. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witnesses before them and Gentiles. Understand there is no small print in following Jesus. No hidden cost. He's very clear that to follow him will be costly. That's why in verse 11 he gives a reminder that the kingdom is worth it. He says, there's no one been born of women that's greater than John the Baptist. Now, keep in mind that by the standards of the world, John was not that impressive. Many of the world looked at him as a crazy man. I mean, the dude is out wearing camel hair clothing, eating honey and locust. The health food diet before it was fashionable. By worldly standards, John would have been considered, to quote Barney Fife from Andy Griffith's show, a nut. Jesus said, don't look at him by worldly standards. The kingdom of heaven, he is great. He is great because of his faithfulness. What John did in speaking to Herod and speaking to truth to those in power was courageous. But not only was John courageous, John was humble. I remind you that when Jesus came walking toward him, John said, there's, there's the Lamb of God and I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. John had a clear purpose for the kingdom. A unique purpose. That's one of the reasons that he is great among humanity. He is the only forerunner of the Messiah. The only one. He preceded Jesus preparing the way, getting hearts and minds ready for the Messiah. So John is at the apex of the old covenant and the inauguration of the new. And Jesus says he is great. But keep in mind the kingdom is so great that the least in the kingdom is greater than John. Now, the point is not to denigrate John. Jesus has just spoken to lift John up and to remind people that even though John is struggling and doubting, he is still great among humanity. The point is to show the greatness of the kingdom by comparison. Think of it like this. You're traveling late at night. You've got your family and you're starting to get tired. The kids are tired and your plans to drive all night to get to your destination are now starting to seem like, well, not such a great idea. So on the distance, you see a sign 
Motel 6. Goodness, you're so tired, you'd have settled for Motel 5. You pull in, say, give me the biggest room you've got. And you go in, and man, it's great. <laughs> Not necessarily because it's Motel 6, but because you're tired, it's a bed, and the kids are asleep, and you get a rest. Now, that room at Motel 6, as nice as it was for you, how would it compare to the smallest room at the Ritz-Carlton in New York City? That's the point Jesus is making. John is great, but the kingdom of God is so great that even the least in the kingdom is greater than John. So he's saying this so that we will remember this, that when the suffering that the world brings begins to hurt, remember the kingdom is greater. When the cost of following Jesus increases, remember the kingdom is greater. Whenever the response to Jesus is not what we expect, remember the kingdom is greater. So Jesus now prepares us for those unexpected responses. And he identifies two ways that the responses to the kingdom will be unexpected. And the first way is found at the very beginning of verse 12. He says, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. So the first unexpected response is this. There will be those who seek to abuse the kingdom. Once again, Jesus is not giving us fine print in following him. He says that, notice in verse 12, that from the days of John the Baptist until now, the examples of suffering are very clear. John's in prison for preaching righteousness. Jesus' very life has already been threatened. I would remind you that when Jesus preached in his hometown of Nazareth, they wanted to kill him. They tried to push him toward the edge of town to throw him off a cliff. So already the response to the kingdom is not what one expects. And the question is, why? If the kingdom is peace, love, joy, and the reign of God, why in the world would the response be abuse toward the kingdom? The answer to that question is found in one word. Repent. That's what the world, the non-believer, finds threatening. And the truth is, probably all of us, before coming to faith, found that word repent challenging, to say the least. I'm not that bad. I, I mean, I'm a pretty good person. What do I need to repent of? You see, most of the time when violence ensues, when there is an attack... Because a person feels threatened and afraid. The message of the kingdom that proclaims repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is one that makes people feel threatened. And the feeling of being threatened arises from the idea that freedom is being curtailed in some way. In fact, that's one of the objections raised against Christianity. Many will say, well, doesn't Christianity curtail freedom? Doesn't it repress people and keep people from being all that they can be? Hence, that's why Christianity is viewed as a danger. 
See, freedom today is viewed as the ability to create your own meaning, your own purpose, and your own moral standards. The world today says that's freedom. And freedom is often defined by a lack of constraint. In other words, I should be free to do whatever I want. And often there will be the caveat, as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. But once again, that very definition needs to be questioned. What constitutes harm to a person or society? But the problem with defining freedom as the ability to create your own meaning, purpose, and morals is that it denies the nature of reality and our capacities. This is what I mean. We would say today, you are free to do whatever you want. If you want to do it, do it. So suppose the, let's take for example, the average American man. According to statistics, the average American male stands 5 foot 9 inches tall and weighs 195 pounds. That's the average man in America. So suppose this average man, 5'9", 195 pounds, says, you know what, I am dreaming of becoming an offensive lineman in the NFL. I've got the freedom to do that. You would say yes. But I want you to consider this. The average NFL offensive lineman stands 6 foot 4 inches and weighs 305 pounds. Average American man, 5'9", 195. Average offensive lineman, 6'4", 305 pounds. Now, you can train, but the truth is the physical reality is telling you. You're probably not going to do very well as an offensive lineman. We must recognize that true freedom comes in recognizing who we are. And how we are defined by the one who created us. And recognizing the natural limitations of such. For example, we could say again, another example. A fish is free when it's swimming in the water. When it's in the environment that it's made for and fulfilling what it was created for, that's freedom. So how would the fish do if it was taken up into a tree and told to fly? Not very well. See, true freedom is recognizing that constraints often are the way to freedom. Look around today. Our culture is one that is broken sexually. Broken. We can look around our culture and see the pain and the hurt from the pursuit of sexual freedom is defined by being I can do whatever I want to do. When we recognize that the constraints that God gives truly give life and freedom. So how are we to respond to those that would abuse the kingdom? We must remember the words of Jesus. Love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And persevere. But there's a second group that we are warned about at the end of verse 12. Jesus warns us or speaks of those who will seek to use the kingdom. When you look at the end of verse 12, he says, The violent take it by force. Now, this is a very hard verse to try to understand and comprehend. Violent, when he speaks of those who are violent trying to take it by force, refers to those who would use any means to constrain or force something. 
But we recognize that the kingdom of God cannot and does not come about by force. People can never be forced to convert to Christianity. History tells us that. You cannot hold a sword or a gun at someone and say become a Christian and expect authentic faith. You can't force Christianity by weapons or legislation. It's a reminder for us that while we should seek laws that are just and righteous, laws will never make anyone a Christian or even make a nation Christian. Only faith in Jesus Christ does that. Only faith in Christ makes a person a believer. And that faith cannot be forced. History shows us that any time the state has tried to force faith, the church has suffered because it becomes corrupt and a tool of that state. So that is what Jesus is warning us of here. That there are those who will abuse the faith and use the faith to their own ends. It may be a media preacher who abuses the gospel, gospel for profit. It may be a politician who abuses the gospel for power. It may even be a business person who puts the fish symbol on their card to make a buck off of believers. This shouldn't surprise us again. Jesus has warned us of it. And the early church gives us examples. In the book of Acts, there was a man known as Simon the Magician who saw the power that Peter and the other apostles had. Did you know he made an offer to Peter? Sell me this. Show me how to do this. He was wanting the power of the gospel in order to use it for his own gain. Let's move over a few chapters to Acts chapter 19. There was a business of Jewish exorcists who saw the power of the disciples in casting out demons. They come and they try the name of Jesus because it may fit their business model. And by the way, it did not work out well. Because the demon turned on them and said these words, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And then beat the living daylights out of them. They were trying to abuse the kingdom by using it for their own ends. So we must be aware that there are those that will try to abuse the kingdom because they are threatened by it. And those that will use the kingdom... Try to take it by violence for their own ends. So how should we respond to this? First, we must be discerning. You see, we must be discerning because there are genuine preachers, genuine politicians, genuine business people that love the Lord. And as the old saying goes, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we must be discerning. You and I are inundated with so much information today. And we live in a world where anyone that has access to the internet can put that information out there. That's why the call for discernment is so crucial. Be thoughtful. Think about character. And be careful that we don't become cynical. Be discerning, but be discerning with intercession. And then we must remember the purpose of the church. 
Any time that the state has tried to use the church for its own ends, the church has begun to view its mission as accomplished. The state was not put here to accomplish the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to make disciples. That's our purpose. And so we must renew our call to make disciples. That's what we are to be about. Yes, make a stand for laws that are just and righteous. But remember that our calling is to bear witness to Jesus as the Messiah and to make disciples. My father has obviously had a great impact on my life. And I recognize more and more as I grow his successes and his shortcomings. Just as one day my children, well I say one day, even now as my children recognize my successes and shortcomings. During my dad's funeral, one of the things that blessed me the most were the number of people that came through and said, you know, Mark, one of the things I respected about your father is that he could talk with anyone and talk with anyone about the gospel. He could talk with men who had PhDs and he could go out in the community around Clearwater Baptist and talk with the farmer working in the field. One such man told the story of a time he had gone with dad on a Saturday morning out soul winning. They went to one of the men in the community that was known to be very antagonistic toward the church. As dad began talking with him about the gospel, this man tried to turn the discussion to all the failures of the church. This church has done that. It's not done that. They're a bunch of hypocrites. The gentleman said that my dad interrupted him and said, Jim, I wouldn't give you a dime to go to that church. But I'd crawl on my hands and knees through the mud to get you to Jesus. That's the drive we need to have. Because there's going to be unexpected responses. Jesus warned us. But that's where we must renew our efforts to show the love, compassion, and the truth of Jesus. Lord, grant it. Bow with me, if you will. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, I thank you that even in the face of our shortcomings, Lord, you are true. And Father, we certainly live in a world where we are seeing the words of Jesus played out in front of us. That there are those who will seek to abuse the kingdom and those that will seek to use it. So Father, help us to do exactly what Jesus said. That we would go out into the world as wise as doves, as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. Grant us this, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.